Hope, peace, love, and joy from the Lord who rose up the sprout of Jesse to bring salvation to us. Our text for our sermon is Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome by fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son for you, and you are to name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to prepare a people who are ready for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you in order to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things happen, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at the proper time. This is the word of our Lord. Before we get to beating on Zechariah too much, and we're not going to do that, but we are looking at a sin he had. We have to recognize that in Luke chapter 1, Luke begins the account by letting us know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. They were believers. They were believers you could look up to. But still, he's in his old age. His wife is past what we call today menopause, so it is biologically impossible for for her to have a child. And he asks that question, how can I be sure of this? Now, if we think we're better, and I think there are times in my own life where I'd be like, amen, and other times I'd be, how can I be sure of this? If we think we're better, we're mistaken. Because just like Zechariah, while we're believers, we also have a sinful nature. And in that sinful nature, we can easily look back and say, wow, that was over 2,000 years ago. How can I be sure of this? And so, as we continue our midweek Advent series, Questions for the coming of our Lord. Today, we will ask, how can I be sure of this? Now, in Zechariah's case, Zechariah is wanting empirical evidence, right? The scientific method. I need to know this for sure. I always say, uh, angel standing in front of you, he just had to tell you not to be afraid. What more evidence could you possibly need? That's how the sinful nature works. And remember, Zechariah is a believer. And so it is that because he refuses to trust, wow, angel stand in front of me, this is clearly from the Lord. The angel himself tells him, now listen, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things happen because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at the proper time. When the angel had greeted him, he told him that he would give birth to the Lord's forerunner and many will rejoice. Zechariah had a golden opportunity for nine months. And then, obviously, uh, Elizabeth was in her sixth month. He would have time even as the Savior was born. uh, But for nine months, he could have been able to share that joy with the world. Joy to the world, the forerunner of the Savior's coming, and that means the Savior's about to come. It's a privilege to get to tell others that God has become a man and has saved us. But Zechariah 
forfeited that privilege when, in this case, he refused to trust in the Lord. Now, what about for us, though? Can't we also, as I've already covered, say, how can I be sure of this? Well, the first thing we want to ask as we look at the, at the coming of our Savior is, can we trust the Bible? You know, for about 150 years now, people have really been attacking the Bible. And in my own lifetime, I've seen plenty of times where television programs get advertised. We found a scroll that debunks the Bible. Archaeologists and popular magazines will throw on the front cover evidence that disproves the Bible. And you know what? Then they start looking at it. Then they look at the further facts. Yeah, oops. The Bible is validated yet again. But you know, that doesn't get all the advertising. That doesn't sell ads. That does not get the front page of the magazines. Oops, we were wrong. No historical document has been attacked more in history than the Bible. And no historical document has withstood those attacks and has proven itself to be historically valid more than the Bible has. The Bible, all the cities mentioned in it, whenever people say, oh, we found out this city doesn't exist, oops, and then they discover it. Coinage, people mentioned time and time again, this thing has proven to have an accuracy. People may not choose to believe the miracles, but when everything else is proven to be so accurate, at least empirically, they're foolish to do so, even though it seems against the odds. And not only does the Bible stand the historical accuracy, but there are other documents that prove there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified by Pontius Pilate for being the king of the Jews. In other words, we would be a fool to deny the existence 2,000 years ago of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. But is he God? How can we be sure of this? Because everything depends on that. If he's just a mere man who got a railroad job, fine. Nobody's going to argue the historical veracity of that. But the minute that you say he's God, then people start saying we can't believe this. Well, the Bible, which I've already mentioned, is a very historical document. Quoting his words tells us in John chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For example, it's one of the many times Jesus calls himself God. He says during the Good Shepherd sermon... But you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Now, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one... He's not saying they are one accord, in one accord. Hondas hadn't been invented yet. Sorry, lousy pastor joke. But the truth of the matter is, lots of times people try to get around this. If Jesus was not claiming to be God, why would the Jews pick up stones to stone him? It was blasphemous to claim to be God unless you were God. And his wording here is very precise, which is one of the reasons why we can say with the Trinity, we have three persons, but one God. He and the Father are one. One God, and they got it that day. He was telling them, I am God. Now, there are several times Jesus does this, but let's go to the time when he's on trial, the morning in which he will end up being crucified as he stands before the Sanhedrin. 
Mark chapter 40, verses 60 through 62 record, The high priest stepped forward and questioned Jesus. Have you no answer? What is this they are testifying against you? But Jesus was silent and did not answer anything. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In case they mistook the I am, saying he's sitting at the right hand of power, that makes it clear Jesus is saying he is the Son of God, hence he is God. Now, they'll have to come up with different charges because the Romans could care less if a person claimed to be God. But this is clear evidence that Jesus said he was God. And the Bible lists that. But you know, Jesus also, the Bible tells us he rose again from the grave. And there's a lot of miracles there, right? He lives for us. He lives perfectly for us as true God and true man. As true God, his life is precious and he is holy and he cannot fall into sin. As man, he can be our substitute and be tempted in every way that we are. He dies on that cross so that his, and as God, his death would be precious enough to atone for all my sins and all of your sins and all the world's sins. And he rises. But even then, there was somebody else who in his own way said, how can I be sure of this? Only he gave how he was going to be sure of it. One of the apostles, who sadly now gets a nickname that sticks with him all the time, so we call him Doubting Thomas, one of the apostles says, I will not believe unless I can touch the nail holes in his hands and put my hand into his side. And Jesus does appear to him and lets him do that. And he calls him my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you have seen. However, more blessed is the person who believes but has not seen. We could be jealous of Zechariah saying, why didn't the angel appear to me? We could be jealous of doubting Thomas and say, why can't I have the empirical evidence that yes, clearly the God man has risen from the grave. But Jesus says you have faith and you are more blessed than Thomas. And so it simply boils down to this. There is evidence that Jesus of Nazareth existed, but the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is God who became man. Either you trust the word of God or you don't. So how do we get that trust? Well, we have a different word that we use for trust. It's called faith. Now, many people today use faith in a weird way. For example, uh, if we were to make a country soap opera, uh, a man's uh, wife leaving him could back up his four-wheel drive truck, hitch up the fifth-wheel camper they were living in, unroll the window, whistle for the dog who jumps in the bed, and slam it into gear and get out of there, pulling their home behind it. And, and he might go running behind saying, babe, stop, don't take my truck, don't take, don't take yourself, don't take my dog. And then while running out after his home and everything, gets slammed by a semi. And there he is, lying there in the hospital, and then somebody comes up to him one of his friends, the only friend he still has left. We'll call his friend Sam. And Sam says, I know life's getting rough, but it'll get better. You just got to have faith. That's not what scripture means by faith. That's just kind of a hope. No, in fact, we got to define faith. And, we, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 defines faith for us. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced about things we do not see. Being sure of what we hope for. And again, the word hope, we can confuse that too because we use it differently in English. I've said in many a sermon, I hope I win the lottery. However, I'm pretty confident I won't because I've never even bought a lottery ticket. That's not biblical hope. 
Faith is being sure about what we hope for. A confident expectation we have because scripture says so. And that means we're being convinced about things we do not see. We were not there to see Christ rise from the grave. However, we are blessed because the Holy Spirit has entered our hearts and created faith in us. That's the new person. So we're confident of that. So how do we get that faith then? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us, so then faith comes from hearing the message and the message comes through the word of Christ. That Bible I was just talking about that has proven itself to be historically accurate. The Holy Spirit works through the word, whether it's proclaimed in your mouth or someone else's or whether it's being read. He works through that to create faith. The message that God became man, did all the work to save us, is our substitute, died in our place, rose victorious and has ascended and is ruling over heaven to bring you in and keep you in your faith. And as Jesus told Nicodemus in his famous conversation in John chapter three, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So we get the faith when we hear the good news of salvation in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters our heart and creates that faith. But you know, just like your body, if you don't feed it, will become malnourished and die, that faith is the same way. Faith is something that must be nourished or we will lose it. So we keep coming to that word, which keeps assuring us so that we can be sure of this, that Jesus has died and rose for us. But if we're constantly coming to that word and feeding that faith, we should be maturing. However, we have to ask ourselves, because there are many people they're quite content to not pay attention much to the word. In fact, if they were to sing the true song of, of their sinful nature, it would be, Jesus loves me, this I know, and this is all I want to know. And that's an immature faith. What does an immature faith look like? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers, I could not speak to you as spiritual people. But as people who are led by the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not yet ready. Why, even now you are still not yet ready, because you are still people who are following the flesh. Indeed, insofar as jealousy, strife, and factions have a place among you, are you not people who are following the flesh? Are you not behaving in, merely a, in a merely human way? An immature faith is one that is not growing in the word. An immature faith then causes all the things of a sinful nature, all the fighting and everything. And it often uh, will amaze you as you get to talking to Christians, how many of them really think the scripture says a lot of things it doesn't, or they don't realize scripture says things that it does say. And because they're not in the word, they're not, they're not growing that faith. So we have to ask ourselves then, if the infant's milk is simply understanding Jesus is our savior, and that saves you, obviously, but then to grow in that and be able to apply it and cling to it, when... Should we stop nourishing that faith? Well, we're going to work through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the gift from Christ. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to his people. Now, what does it mean when it says he ascended, other than he also descended to the lower parts, namely the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. He himself gave the apostles as well as the prophets, as well as the evangelists, as well as the pastors and teachers for the purpose of training the saints for the work of serving in order to build up the body of Christ. 
We constantly want to build up the body of Christ, so we build up our own new person by constantly nourishing it in the Word. And He's provided us teachers and apostles and pastors and, and, and prophets uh, to, to do that. And so our text continues in verse 13, answering again, when should we stop nourishing our faith? Verse 13 says, this is to continue until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, resulting in a mature man with the stature reaching to the measure of the fullness of Christ. When the whole entire Christian church can be told this is mature, uh, that's not going to happen until Christ returns because we all have a sinful nature. And so verse 14 tells us, The goal is that we would no longer be little children tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching when people use tricks and invent clever ways to lead us astray. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we would in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. One of those signs of a mature Christian is knowing the truth of God's word and being able to speak it in love because we can look at somebody sin and say, well, look at them. Doesn't that just disgust you? I'm glad I don't struggle with that sin. I'm better than them. That's not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is showing a brother or sister in Christ their sin, for example, so that you can show them their savior and help them to struggle with that. One is a self-righteous act. The other is an act of love. When should we stop nourishing our faith? When we are called to heaven or Christ returns, whichever comes first in your and my life. And so, as we've seen, we've asked questions to ask in the coming of our Lord, and we've asked, how can I be sure of this? The answer is, go to the scripture. The Holy Spirit works through that scripture. The Holy Spirit creates faith, and then he continues to nourish that faith so you're able to apply it so that you stand strong in it. Zechariah was called a righteous man. He was a believer. This was a a, a bad moment for him in his life. And when he said, how can I be sure of this? Again, you go, an angel standing there. It scared you. He had to tell you not to be afraid. You wanted empirical evidence. There it was. But he missed it. And he lost the golden opportunity that for nine months he could have been telling people the joyous message, the forerunner of the Savior is coming, and therefore the Savior is soon going to be here. Will you keep your lips zipped during this season of a golden opportunity? We give gifts to each other as a reminder. The Christians started this because the greatest gift of all was given to us. God became a man and lived in our place, died in our place, rose and has ascended into heaven. We give gifts to remind each other of that. But the pagans, the unbelievers, they like the gift part. And Christmas has become, they've taken Christ out of it and just made it a mass of mammon of property. This is a golden opportunity because we can still point to it and tell our unbelieving neighbor, our our Christian friend who's very immature in their faith, uh, about what it all means and, and, and about how Christ is the greatest gift given to us so we can proclaim it with certainty. How can we be sure of this? God has empowered you by giving you faith through the word. That word nourishes your faith and matures it. God has empowered you to share that faith that Jesus is the Christ. And through that word, you are certain of it. Amen. Now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our sin-enshrouded hearts, and his light will continue to guide our feet onto his path of peace. Amen.